0: Well, good morning. morning. We started a new series last week. It's called The Ascent. We're looking at spiritual events that have happened on mountains. And the big idea of this series is that God's purpose for us is established by his provision for us. And last week we looked at the story of Abraham and Isaac and their meeting with God on Mount Moriah. God had previously promised Abraham that he would make a mighty nation out of him and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed and that was to happen through Isaac. That was 600 years ago, 600 years prior to the place where we are today. Today we're at Mount Sinai and in that 600 years, 400 of them, Abraham's descendants were enslaved in Egypt and God told him that was going to happen too. They were enslaved, they were oppressed, they cried out, and God answered their prayer. He delivered them, and most of you know the stories. Through a series of miraculous events, he delivered them from Egypt. He got Pharaoh to let them go, and it culminated in one really spectacular event at the Red Sea when they left, and Pharaoh changed his mind and started to pursue them, and they found themselves trapped with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army closing in behind him. And in a powerful display, he separates the waters of the Red Sea, two walls of water on both sides, and the Israelites go through on dry ground to safety, and when the Egyptians pursue them, the walls close in. That would have been a diary entry event that day, don't you think? <laughs> Dear diary, you wouldn't believe what happened today. It made an, a, a, an impression on these guys. And now it's three months after that and they are at the foot of Mount Sinai, camping there, and God calls a business meeting with them. He speaks through Moses to the people and he says this. First he reminds them of what he's done. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, Keep my commandment, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's basically offering them a contract. He mentioned a covenant. It's basically an agreement between him and them. Though they have little, virtually nothing to bring to the table. And he had every right to demand they obey him. He'd created them. He had saved them out of Egypt, and he sustained them. But instead, he offers an agreement with them. He offers provision. He offers to continue to deliver them, to sustain them. And he offers them purpose, this great privilege to be a nation that represents him, to be his ambassadors before all the other nations. And the only thing that he asks, his only requirement, is that they do what he says. And they recognize a good deal when they see it, and they basically say, where do I sign? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, they say. And so now they're going to meet him in person. According to Scripture, that's going to happen for all of us at some point. Paul says we will all stand before him one day and give an account to him for our lives. If Scripture's true, that's going to happen whether we believe it or not. Not believing it is not going to cause it to go away. So just in case, it might be good to brush up on our interview skills if that's going to happen. What is it going to be like to meet him? What will he be like? There's a lot of ideas out there, and some of them are directly opposed to the other ones. For example, some people say it's not going to be a really good day because God is a God of judgment. Maybe even a bully, like a demanding boss, who's never happy, unapproachable, intimidating, just watching, waiting for us to mess up so he can jump down our throats. And they say God is going to be like that because he's the God of judgment. And actually, there are many passages in Scripture that say that God does judge sin, like this one. This is God speaking himself of himself in the third person. He says, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So there you go. If God creates a law and you break it, you are guilty. You can count on punishment. Welcome to life point. (laughs) But some disagree with that. They say that's not the way it is at all. God is a God of love, almost like a loving grandfather. He will always forgive everyone's sins. No loving God would send people to hell. All people will be welcome to heaven someday. So like a doting grandfather who passes out treats to the kids when the parents aren't looking and turns the other way when they misbehave. God is a God of love. And there are many passages in scripture that talk about his mercy, his forgiveness, his blessings. Like this one, again, God speaking of himself in the third person, saying, the Lord God, who's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger abounding in loving kindness, keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So what's the deal? What's he like? Is he a God of judgment or is he a God of love? And the answer is both. I want you to notice something. I picked those verses on purpose because they aren't actually two verses at all. They're actually both part of the same verse, and you can see it on the screen. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And here's the point. You can believe things that are entirely true and still come to a false conclusion if you're only looking at part of the facts. You need the full picture for things to fall into place. Let me show you one picture, if we can put that on the screen. This is a partial picture. I've obscured most of it. What do you suppose that is? You know, your mind kind of wants to fill in the details. Uh, We don't like to leave things halfway. To me, that looks like a lightning bolt. Somebody else told me, no, it's a worm (laughs) or it's a branch but you don't really know, you wanna fill that in. It's almost like, if you you ever had the experience where you're talking to someone on the phone, not Zoom, but the phone, you can't see them, but you speak for a while, and you start to get a picture in your mind of what they look like, and you're pretty certain from the way they talk, the things they say, they probably look like this. Have you ever actually met that person then? Were you ever right? Am I the only one, for me, and I have that experience. I want to fill the details in. I've got a little bit of data, and the only thing I know for certain is they're not gonna look anything like the picture in my mind. It is never right. You need the whole picture, and then everything falls into place. If you can show the whole picture now next to the other one. It's not a lightning bolt like in judgment at all. It's actually a picture of the Liberty Bell which is supposed to represent liberty and freedom, you need the full picture for it to make sense. Or you might come to a false conclusion. And you need the full picture of who God is. A partial understanding of who he is in his character can lead to a partial view of who he actually is. God is at once perfectly loving and also perfectly just. And he does not change And he will not pursue one of his characteristics, his attributes, at the expense of violating the other. So what will it be like to meet a God like that? When God presented himself on the mountain to these folks, maybe we can gather a clue. It became pretty clear... Very in a very short period of time, that this was not going to be a casual conversation over coffee. It was, it was kind of intense, you know? You might want to wear a tie. He says, get ready. He says, consecrate yourself, which basically means to set yourself apart for him and his, servant, his service. Wash your garments, he says. Don't go near or even touch the mountain under penalty of death. Don't even let your livestock get near it. And so then on the third day, the moment comes. Here's what it says happened. On the third day when it was morning, there were thunder and lightning flashes and the thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke Because the Lord descended on it in fire, and the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And God speaks, and the first thing he does is remind them of who he is and what he's done. He says, I am the Lord your God, and I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he delivers to them the Ten Commandments, which is actually the starting point of the law. The law is a massive topic. The law is spelled out in Scripture in chapter after chapter. We can't even begin to scratch the surface of it. The Ten Commandments was a summary of what's detailed out in the pages that follow. The only thing I want to mention is this. It put them on the screen there just so... We can remind ourselves what they are. The first half of that list, roughly, deals with how we are to relate to God. And the second, roughly, half of the list deals with how we are to relate to each other in thought and word and in deed, as spelled out by everything in the chapters that follow. And as far as the relating to God point Think what's really critical is those first two. We are to have no other gods. This is what he tells them. No other gods before me. And don't create an idol. Don't create some false image and worship that instead of me. He is supposed to be number one. He is the one that is supposed to be at the center of life, at the throne of life. And as we go through life and make decisions and choices, they all are supposed to support what's on the throne, and he doesn't want anyone else there other than him. That sums up the law. And basically, later on in the Old Testament, and Christ repeats it, what Christ says is the whole law is summed up in these two things. Love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And this summarizes that. God speaks those words to him to them in power, and the people are frightened. Look at their response. All the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled. They stood at a distance. They said to Moses, you be our mediator. You go between us. He said, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. So here's a question. God's introducing himself. Why would he say and do these things? Are those in the God is a bully camp correct? Aren't these tactics that a a bully would deploy? Why would you graciously offer deliverance and, and sustenance and purpose only to scare them half to death and then give them a bunch of rules which they couldn't keep, even for a few days? And the answer is, He wasn't being a bully at all. He was actually doing it for their benefit. Because per their actions before and after this event, it's pretty clear that just like that picture of the lightning bolt, they had a partial view of God. They didn't really know who they were dealing with. After the Red Sea, it says that they put their trust in God. But the actions show that that wasn't really fully true. Because every subsequent problem that they had, every difficulty difficulty they encountered, they end up complaining, grumbling. The Red Sea incident was in Exodus 14. In Exodus 15, they don't have water. And rather than humbly asking him for it, they demand it with attitude. We got nothing to drink. In Exodus 16, they don't have food. And they give him even more attitude and demand that. And he provides it in every case. He provided the water. He provided the food. In Exodus 17, they don't have water again. And rather than learning from the previous incident, they give him even more attitude. Here's what they say. Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Which is a tad harsh, don't you think? And look, I'm, I'm not mocking them because I realize in my own heart I do the same thing. Every time I'm in a situation where I'm over my head, I get frustrated that God allowed that to happen. I can't figure out what He's doing. But then He comes through. He always comes through. And I see it, and I see just like in every past incident, he's, incidents, he's always there. And I say thanks. Until 10 minutes later... When the next crisis happens and I find myself in that same place again. That's what they're doing. And each time they complain, though, he still provides for their needs. And he teaches them something about himself, his power, his love, his patience. But they're revealing something too. They've seen his power in the past, they understood something about him, but they're ungrateful. And it would appear from their actions that they view him like a pocket-sized God who's there to meet their needs and ignore their sins. Almost like he's there to serve them rather than the other way around, like a butler, like a, a genie who's there to dispense blessings. And they're fully prepared to abandon him if he ever doesn't dispense them quickly enough or to their satisfaction. And that is exactly what they do. They do not long after this event. When Moses is delayed talking to God on the mountain, they decide they've waited long enough, they actually build an idol. They construct a golden calf, and they worship it, and they actually credit it with their deliverance from Egypt rather than God. Their view of God was too small. They had a partial view. And it put them at risk of losing the blessings and the privileges that God had plan for them. The big picture is that he's not a small God at all. He's an awesome God. He's large. He's big. He's powerful. He's omnipotent. He's glorious. And you can see that just by looking at the creation that he's made. Whether you look at the expanse of the universe and how huge and complex it is, or you go the other way and look down at the complexities in a single cell, either way you go, you see his fingerprints all over it. And the more glorious the creation, the more glorious the creator. And you can also see his awesomeness in the witness of others who've actually had an encounter with him. They can't even begin to describe it. The experience undoes them. Not long after this event, God did allow a subset of people, a small group of people, to go partway up the mountain and meet with him, see a bit of his glory. And here's what it says about that. Maybe we can learn something about what he's like from this. Moses went up with Aaron, that's Moses' brother, and Nadab and Abihu, which are Aaron's sons, seven of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Okay, great. What's he going to look like? Here's the description. Under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. The end. That's all they can say. Either he's so glorious that they can't even raise their eyes above the pavement to take it in, like trying to look at the sun, or words just fail them when they try to describe it. All they can describe is the pavement under his feet and how blue. We saw God. And and the pavement was blue. It was, it was so blue. It was blue like the, like the sky. It, it was blue. <laughs> the end. And that was a toned down revelation. God tells Moses, no one can see him and live. You can't see my face. If he were to reveal his full glory, you'd be incinerated. So anytime the Bible says that someone saw God, there are always qualifications. Because they wouldn't live to tell you what it was like if he showed them his full glory. And we can see how awesome he is from that. But we can also see it from where we really see how different he is. Is in his holiness. Holy is a word that's kind of hard to define. It's an all-encompassing term. It refers to his transcendence. His perfection, the distinction of who God is, what sets him apart. And one aspect of it in particular that sets him apart is his righteousness, his moral character. God is the standard, he defines righteousness. He's in a very different place than we are. We live in a world of moral compromise. If you ask a hundred people, Where is the cutoff between righteousness and sin? You'll get a hundred different answers. But what will probably be consistent with most of them is we're going to define that standard somewhere south of where we actually are. We can always find someone who in our view demonstrates behavior that's worse than ours and think that we're okay. But in Scripture, the more a person understands God's holiness, the more they realize they're not okay. They tremble. Think of Peter when he first realized who Christ was. He's been fishing all night, caught nothing, and now there's Christ telling him, just throw your net over there. I'm sure there was an eye roll when that happened after fishing all night, but he did it, and the net was so full of fish right away that it began to break, and the boat began to sink from the weight, and Peter realized He's dealing with a God who can do miracles. And his response is not, hey, bro, you need to come fishing with us more often. His response is, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Isaiah, super powerful, major prophet in the Old Testament, had an encounter with God similar to the one we saw. He sees God on his throne in the temple. And the foundations are trembling. And the room is filling with smoke. And he says, he thinks he's going to die. But it's not his finiteness in the face of all that power that has him distraught. It's his uncleanness. And he says this, I'm, woe is me, I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. And I live among a people of unclean lips. That's what's going to destroy him. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's holiness discloses our sinful nature in a way that moral comparisons with each other never can. In his presence, degrees of sin are superfluous. No arbitrary number of sins constitutes a cutoff between heaven and hell. There's only those who have sin and those who do not. And that second set is a very small set. And this was God's self-disclosure to these people through the power and the giving of the law. It was a provision for them, even though it frightened them, because it taught them who they were dealing with. They weren't encountering a God who was a pocket-sized butler God. They were encountering their heavenly king. And he'd proven to them time and again that he's a God of love, but he's also a just God, and he cannot and will not shrug off sin. Sin is serious. All sin is serious. It damages us. It damages the people that we come in contact with. And worst of all, it separates us from God. It creates a barrier between us and him. That same Isaiah says to his people, your sins have made a separation between you and your God and have caused him to hide his face from you. And the law spells all this out. It teaches this. It instructs in meticulous detail. Because God is holy, it reveals his high standards and his expectations for how people are to live. Because he is just, the law teaches that our sins can't be overlooked. They have to be paid for. But because he's loving, fortunately, it also teaches that he is willing to accept a substitute as an alternative to us paying for our sins ourselves. And then it lays out a very detailed sacrificial system where Various offerings were made to pay for sins that people committed. Usually it involved the sacrifice of an unblemished animal. And it was teaching those people that sin results in death. But rather than you dying, the animal can die in your place. It was their provision. But the problem was, people don't just sin once, they keep sinning. And so those sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again. It was a recurring reminder to them of how high the bar was, of how we keep missing the mark, and how wide the chasm is between where He is and where we are. The, the law was God's provision and that it revealed all of that. But the thing is, it was only a teaching tool. It it was temporary. It could only go so far. It taught the people the need for forgiveness. But it couldn't actually provide it. The New Testament says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away someone's sin. It also taught their, des- their desperate need, not just for forgiveness, but for lasting forgiveness. The need for something or someone who could once and for all pay for and remove our sins so that we're forgiven forever. It pointed out our need for a Savior. And we have one. All along, the law was pointing to Jesus. The law couldn't save us, but it was a provision in that it pointed to the one who could. It pointed to our ultimate provision, Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul says this in Galatians 3. He says the law has become our guardian or our tutor to lead us to Christ. It was a teacher. It pointed out the one who ultimately could deliver us. And as a matter of fact, the whole Bible points to him. The whole Bible points to him in his gospel message that sin separates us, that the chasm is too great for us to cross by our own effort. And so in an act of love, God crossed it for us and sent his son, his only son, to live the perfect life without sin that we were intended to live. And then to offer his sinless life as a payment for our sinful one, to pay the debt that we owe so that we don't need to pay for it ourselves. That was the plan all along. It was the only way. If we could have that chasm ourselves, ourselves if we could have met God's standard by some other means then Christ didn't need to die but there was no other way so the apostle Peter points that out when he says salvation is found in no one else there is no other way there's no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved saved That's what the gospel is. It was actually a rescue mission. Planned before the beginning of time. And executed out of love by the entire Godhead. To save us. To save us from eternal death and from separation from God. It gives us new life that begins now. It gives us purpose that begins now. It gives us freedom that begins now. And carries on through all Eternity, And it starts with the message he has for each of us. Your sins have to be paid for. You can pay for them yourself. Or you can ask Christ to pay for them for you. He says you're in deep water. You're in danger of drowning. And out of love, he's crossed the depths to where you are. And he's thrown you a life preserver. He's saying take it. Take it. If you haven't done that this morning, some of you maybe would consider you don't have a relationship with God. You sense that if you were to meet Him today, it might not go well. You sense your need for forgiveness. If God's tugging on your heart and telling you that today, that's your next step. Take hold of the life preserver. You'll have an opportunity to do that in a moment when we pray. It just takes a prayer to open your heart and let him in. You can trust him. He sent his own son to die for you. What more does he need to do to demonstrate his love? But before we pray, I want to say one more thing, one final observation to those who have done that. The big idea of this series is God's purpose for us who is established by his provision. We've talked a lot about his provision this morning. We talk about the gospel so much that sometimes it's like, oh, okay, he's going to talk about the gospel. Let me think about something else. Meditate on these things. The full picture of God, the extent of his love for you, the extent of his power, the extent he went to to win a way back for you by sending his only son, the extent of his love for you. Meditate on those things. Meditate on the fact that you now live on the other side of the cross, which is an incredible privilege. Whereas the Old Testament folks feared for their lives in the presence of God, you can walk right into his presence because you're forgiven. The separation is gone. Praise God for that. What a wonderful time to be alive. And that should cultivate a fresh appreciation for what he's done and praise and gratitude for what he's done and who he is. And it's also a reminder of the great privilege of the role he has. What he offered to the Israelites, he offers to us. We can be his ambassadors, his representatives to the world. What could possibly be a greater privilege than that? His provision establishes his purpose. Purpose is something at this stage of life, especially for me, that's more important than most anything. I would imagine for anybody who's actually thought about it, you probably feel the same way. Most people don't want to just sit on the couch, eat junk food until they run out of time and die. Most people want their life to matter, to count, to make a difference. God's purpose will make your life make a difference. Pursue the purpose He has for you. God's provision for you allows that. And it's a greater purpose than you can pursue. Anything else in this life is going to end someday. His purpose will continue on to be his representative. He has a role for every one of us here to play. Everyone. If you don't believe that, maybe you think he doesn't, love me enough. He's got a purpose for other people, but not for me. I've sinned too much. It's too late. I'm too young. I'm too old. He's talking to someone else. If that's what's going through your mind, you have a partial view of God. Take on the full view, how much He loves you, how much He's done for you, His power to change your life. His promises to you that He won't ever leave you or forsake you. That He began a good work in you and He will continue it until Christ returns. Take on the big view. And the message of Scripture is be all in. Don't just give Him a portion of your works. Give Him your life. Give Him your heart. And His provision for you will enable you to reach his purpose for your life in ways that are just unimaginable let's pray use your own words if you want to meet Christ right now you can meet him right now he's waiting pray something like this God I realize I fall short of your standard I realize I've sinned and I would like to accept Christ's offer to pay for my sins so I don't need to pay for them myself. I ask for him to forgive me. I ask him to come into my life. I give him the throne of my life. I ask him to be my Lord from this day forward. Lord, thanks that you always answer that prayer when anyone ever asks it. And For those of us who have already done that, I pray you'd give us a fresh appreciation for the provision you've given us and a vision for the purpose of our lives and what you created us to do. May we not leave any of that undone. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the privilege of being a representative in the world to a God so great. I ask these things in Christ's name.